and we are back again hello everyone and thank you so much for tuning in on the green living chats podcast happy happy new year to everyone we hope that 2022 is gonna be an exciting year looking forward to achieving all the things that we have listed here on the green living chats that we will be bringing to your table this year and in the subsequent episodes each and every week we're gonna give you a little bit of it as we move on so daniel what do we have today Hello everyone, welcome to another exciting episode on the Green Living Charts podcast. In today's episode, we're going to be discussing climate finance and sustainability with Papa Kukuba Orjan. Papa Kukuba Orjan is a lecturer at the Fodor University of Applied Sciences and an external doctoral candidate at Ulm University, both in Germany. He is also an external research associate of the Center of Climate and Sustainability Finance at USI Lugano in Switzerland. His research focuses on building market-based mechanisms for pricing voluntary carbon offsets and developing market designs that encourage investment in carbon projects with quality and environmental integrity. He has previously worked predominantly in the energy industry in Germany at RWE and PGNIG in various risk and project management roles. Papa is married to the love of his life, Sharon, and is based in Fodor, Germany. When not conducting research, he loves to play the bass guitar, follow news on financial markets, or get involved with his local church. In this episode of Climate Finance and Sustainability, Origin guides us in a discussion as we study what goes into carbon pricing with respect to carbon emissions to mitigate climate change impacts. This, of course, leads us to discussions on climate justice. Here we discuss various schemes employed by both governmental organizations and private industries to deal with carbon emissions in their bid to mitigate climate change and its impacts. Given his rich background in both academia and industry, Origin offers us more insights into these discussions. Wow, this conversation was full of insights and very educative and I really can't wait to share this with you. We hope that you enjoy this conversation as we have. Here we go. You are listening to the Green Living Chat podcast, a podcast where we discuss emerging environmental issues around the world as well as related ongoing research to find sustainable solutions. This is the research story segment. I am your host, David Ewisimensa, with your co-host, Daniel Fifi Teria Hagen. We use this platform to support environmental-related initiatives, research, and projects through interdisciplinary conversations that promote holistic, critical thinking. This podcast is brought to you by Ecoamet Solutions in Ghana with a mission to going back to green. So join us on this train this and every Sunday. Here we go. Hello, everyone. We are very excited about this episode of the Green Living Chats podcast. You're all very welcome. Today, we have with us Papa Kukuba Orjan. He is a friend of mine, high school buddies. We were studying biology and somehow today we are working, working in other shoes. 
we are very happy to have him to talk about climate finance and sustainability. It's just a, a time where we brainstorm on how climate finance can help us to think about sustainability. And so we're just going to go straight into the conversation. Um, KB is going to help us to see how we can think about this and how we can talk about it and hopefully to encourage someone to get into this as well. So KB, you're very, very welcome. This is the Green Living you, Chats podcast. Yeah. Thank you very much, Daniel. It's been a long, long time. So. It's been a very long time. <laughs> yeah, it's nice to be on your show. Yeah, thank you very much. The first thing we want to do is we want to, we want to know about you. Is, is KB an enigma or is he someone we can, we can really get to know? Who are you and where are you now and what are you doing? Tell us about your, your childhood experience, interest, education, and why have you chosen this path? <laughs> okay, that, 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 that's a very big one. Um, so as I said, first off, thank you for having me on the podcast. It's been a long time. I don't remember the last time we met face to face. I think it was at <laughs> KNUSD in Ghana. Yeah. So that's really exciting that we can connect again in this way. Like you, I'm from Ghana because I grew up also like you in a pastoral family. We we used to move around a lot. Yeah. Uh -huh. So I never really stayed in one place. That was more or less, yeah, parents moving around all the time, different stations on church work. So, so I remember my childhood very fondly, obviously, because from a Christian home, really deeply scriptural um, and imbued with the faith and so that's still a very core part of my life obviously but then we had we had the great childhood my sister and I and my, my younger brother played soccer a lot you know <laughs> you won't believe it now that I was in in high school I was in the school team soccer team but yeah I'm not the, <laughs> the greatest physical specimen right now but yeah <laughs> um, but right from a childhood I think my interest um, in soccer and also in numbers and learning, mainly driven by my dad at a time when he made it really fun. And my sister taught me my first numbers. I still remember vividly. So nice. learning was fun, more or less. And, and I got hooked on to, to numbers. And I think for most of us in our class, if you remember from the fans film where we met, everyone was numerical or like numbers at least. So, mm. so that, that, that was a common theme growing up um, through high school, even at Infantspim. And I continued to KNUSD, um, Kwame Nkrumah University of Science and Technology, where I studied math Whoa. for my undergrad. So wait, yeah. so, you know, while everyone is like, okay, you know, I'm going to do this, you know, you're like, no, it's math. And so you're like, were you just adding, adding numbers or something like that? So. Well, um, it's true. Back in the day, or in Ghana, back in the day, they used to say math is not um, a professional course. You don't you don't do math and then end up as, you know, like other professors. You're a doctor, you're an engineer, you're well, yeah. you're a mathematician. But what do you do with it in a developing or a lower middle income country? But the benefit of math for me was, and um, it really opened up my mind and um, logical reason, how to think and appreciate problems, you know, and to think in abstract terms. And those are skills and traits that have really helped me along the way. So I really appreciate that. After I continued on to Ulm University here in Germany, um, where I pursued my master's in financial economics, what really inspired moving to Germany and to Ulm 
was because in 2008, 2009, Ghana had discovered oil. And you know, in most countries, energy is a big part of the of the inflation index of CPI. There's a reason for that because energy basically affects the whole economy and the cost and services of goods. So there was the interest or there was the, a clarion call more or less for local content buildup in the energy industry in Ghana. And I thought I'll combine my math background with finance and become an energy risk professional, which I became eventually certified by the Global Association of Risk Professionals so so I could work in the energy industry. Wow. Yes. It, it just so happened, Daniel, that um, I've, I've since been in Germany still and, and have worked for maybe six years. I worked for six years in, in the energy industry in different risk management roles and acting as aspiring partner more or less for traders. Yeah. You asked me a question about how I, why I switched to sustainability. At, at a point, you realize that even in the utilities and energy industry, there's a broad consensus that climate change is real. Um, and even utilities are shaping up or restructuring in a way that they can position themselves it's not just from the bottom line on our commercial perspective, but from the investor and corporate social responsibility stance. So I realized, that, okay, the science is clear. Um, the consensus is also clear, but there is still a lot lacking and there's still a lot we do not know about climate change and how we mitigate it. And clearly money moves the needle all the time. And so the finance of it... Um, and how we price carbon and how we price carbon-related product was a big driver for me joining the project that I'm working on. It's it's a collaboration between Ulm University in Germany, Fulda University of Applied Sciences, also in Germany, the University of Lugano in Switzerland. It's a working group that's focused on finding market-based solutions um, for deforestation and, and how we manage pricing of carbon instruments. Wow. So that's my journey. <laughs> wow it's certainly exciting i mean i wish we had more time to dig deeper into this i mean you went into you said you were an energy risk professional it seems like I mean, this is something that will be very exciting right uh, is it is, yeah. what were you doing as an energy energy risk professional uh during that time erps are educated or yeah are educated to to have a fundamental understanding of different energy commodities so from A to Z, from oil to freight to LNG to all those, and the way they are priced on financial markets. The, the thing with energy is, is that oftentimes it's unique as an asset class because of the fiscal risks that are associated with it. And of course, the financial valuations that you need to also provide. So um, you might deliver coal, but it might not be exactly what you contracted, or you might have um, gas, and you have to think about swings um, in, in, in terms of the volumes. And so you give yourself different tools in a way that you can value these and how you, you compensate for volumes that do not match um, expectations, for example. So energy-rich professionals are well-educated in very different parts of the commodity um, sector such that they can provide governance, they can provide advice on risk valuations. And this is really valuable, especially for energy trading companies, for even policymakers, because oftentimes that knowledge gap is there and it's lacking. So on a day-to-day -day basis, for example, for me, uh, recently it's involved more or less a lot of stress testing. So stress testing would be 
looking at how the company's financial positions would react if there was a stress on the market or if prices moved from their current levels by X amount. And so you do that and then you revalue your portfolio. And that's really an industry standard that helps companies more or less guard themselves against unforeseen losses and take appropriate steps. Wow. David would beat himself up that he, he's not here because he really appreciated when someone in the academics is also very well vexed in the industry and, and is able to sort of switch in between conversations, you know, between what we need to know, the knowledge and what we, what we need to do in the industry. So uh, this is something that I, I want us to hold on to, this kind of harmony over there and, and, and use that, trace that through our whole conversation. Can you tell us what is climate finance? It sounds like a very fancy expression. Did, did you just make it up to get a PhD <laughs> position or, or is it? <laughs> I didn't make it up. <laughs> I, I didn't make it up. I can promise you that one. But so I, I start off from, as I said initially, it's an industry consensus that climate change is real. And in global commerce, money moves the needle. And so climate finance is a way, in a sense, we, it refers to the local the national and the transnational deployment of funds, yeah, and allocation of funds in a way that we can mitigate and create mitigation factors and adaptation factors and to provide simply alternative sources of funding, yeah, for people, companies, countries, regions that will be affected by a change in climate. Yeah. Climate change impacts are, are non-homogeneous, so some places will be affected more than others, in terms of intensity and frequency. For example, extreme weather events may have recently become more um, prevalent. We've seen a lot of fires in, in places where we didn't used to hear news about them, like Greece. And some countries will be equipped to handle those better than, than others. And so the idea of climate finance is to find innovative ways of pricing carbon to generate funds, obviously, and then to deploy those funds or allocate these funds in a way that helps us to mitigate and adapt. You are beginning to hit the sweet spot over there. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, you made a very, very interesting point, which is, I think, something that a lot of people don't re realize when we talk about climate change is that it's not homogeneous. Mm -hmm. Uh, for me as a climate scientist, this is something that is very real in my mind. Mm. And, uh, and so we do, we, we sort of go into uh, regional analysis and global analysis. At the end of the day, we want the entire globe to look good, but then we also have the responsibility to look at these uh, regional differences. This is something that I, I, I hope that hopefully, I mean, somehow we can, we can sort of get back to as we have our discussions. You talked about pricing of carbon, and this is where I think we can continue to develop our conversation. This is a hot topic. It's a very, very hot topic. Can you sort of enlighten us what goes into pricing of carbon and carbon emissions and, and all these things? What, what goes into it? That's a very important question. Before I explain how it works, to understand carbon pricing, one needs to recognize that carbon is global. The CO2 gases or carbon emissions that are emitted into the atmosphere are not unique to one country, not to China, not to US or not to the EU. And so in that sense, carbon is a global commodity and every sequestered metric ton of carbon counts, whether it's in Ghana it's in Congo or it's in the US or it's in China. Yeah. So it is this thinking that led to what we call the Kyoto Protocol that basically allowed rich countries, so without getting too technical, rich countries 
to develop carbon projects in poor countries, poor countries in inverted commerce, in a way that the rich countries can meet commitments, their climate commitments, and poor countries to meet their sustainability goals. So, of course, there were a lot of difficulties in terms of implementation with several questions about additionality. Can we actually reduce, are, are these projects actually reducing the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere? Questions about leakage, permanence, et cetera, which eventually led to different mechanisms. So, the Clean Development Mechanism, CDM, uh, from Kyoto, more or less had a lot of questions about quality, reliability, and overestimation of emissions. So that, that kind of went on, and now we have so many different standards for more or less certifying the quality of the carbon credit. So what really is a carbon credit or the price of a carbon credit? It, a credit is basically a promise to reduce or remove or sequester carbon by a certain amount. And how we do that? Well, in general, we have two main market mechanisms. We have the cap and trade schemes that are mandated or regulated. So by state agencies, the most popular ones, the biggest at the moment maybe would be the EU ETS. But there is recently the Chinese launched one, which promises to be perhaps the biggest of them all. There is a California cup and trade, and there is a New Zealand one as well. So how that works is more or less, you have a regulator who establishes a pool of, of permits um, that you can purchase. So you can have your allocation that you can purchase. And then when you purchase this, it's a real option or it gives you the real chance or yeah, permission to pollute by the amount that is on the certificate. And if you do that, so you gain these through what we call primary auctions. And then if you have a surplus, you can sell it on the secondary markets via agent interactions. Yeah. So that's, that's the cup and trade side of things. And so you clearly see that there is going to be a lot of demand for these compliance certificates. If, for example, the power price goes up because power is produced based on the spark spread, based on the, the margin between power price and its inputs, that would be either coal or it will be gas or even oil. So when the, the margin is positive, an utility will produce power and he needs to buy carbon to balance it out. So that's a typical example. So if there is a lot of load on load for power and then power prices go up, it will definitely pull carbon. And that's the same with, with also oil and even to a large extent more with coal. So that's more or less a summary of the cup and trades or also compliance markets. On the flip side, we have what we call the voluntary carbon markets. And the voluntary carbon markets, they are not regulated. So by definition, you participate voluntarily. It so happens that we have, again, industry consensus that companies should care more about their carbon footprints. So we have the, the advent of ESG investors, and these companies will then buy certificates from project developers to balance their footprints, the ones that they cannot already balance out with, with the compliance certificates. So there are different kinds of projects. It could be forests, it could be renewable energy, and it could be agriculture, it could be waste disposal. There are a lot of different ones and they are all driven by different factors, right? So in the end, what's important is, is the credit quality assured and, and how can we justify that? So, so there are a lot of different factors that affect the price 
of a voluntary carbon certificate. So obviously, if I am from Germany and I want to buy a certificate in Ghana, I do not know what's going on in Ghana. So I find someone who will breach the information asymmetry to tell me that this is a good credit. And those things kind of increase cost, right, and, and price. So, so um, it's actually one of the things I'm working on right now to try and explain the factors that drive, especially voluntary carbon certificate price. I know there's a long answer, but just to summarize this, the, the compliance certificates and the voluntary carbon certificates both want to price carbon in a way that provides a least cost path to net zero. But there is a huge price differential um, between compliance and voluntary. So on average, voluntaries are around $5 per metric ton, which is really low. And you have for example, the EU ETS, which has been hovering around 60 euros per metric ton recently. So it's, the question is, why is there such a disparity? And obviously, there are so many things there to discover. Wow. I, there's just so much that I want to feed back from this. <laughs> <laughs> we are already going into sustainability conversations now because you are talking about uh, carbon pricing. And, and of course, from the Kyoto Protocol, we know what this is meant to achieve. And we don't have time to go into the details of that, unfortunately. Uh, <laughs> um, very yeah. unfortunately. But hopefully, I mean, we, we plan on having a discussion mm. on the IPCC report uh, with uh, some of the authors uh, on, on this podcast. So hopefully during that time, we can dig deeper into it. But for now, how important is, is, is carbon pricing to sustainability? And is it realistic? Uh, I mean, do you, see, do you see the measures that we are taking in in place, price and carbon, is it, is, it, is it realistic? What has been the sort of the cooperation from countries? What are the downsides of, of, of it? You, you already began to talk about them, but could you sort of enlighten us more on, on this? Hi there, just a quick one. So if you're enjoying this conversation, why don't you just share this episode with a friend of a friend? And let's get more people to listen to this episode. The agency of climate change and humans reducing our impact and footprint on the environment is a necessity. And these are the conversations we need to promote. You can also help us by giving us a star rating or sharing your comments on whichever platform you are listening to this episode. Visit our website and our social media platforms in the show notes and get interactive with us or send us an email at glcpodcast at ecoamidsolutions.com. So thank you in advance. Let's get back into this conversation. Yes. So it's a, it's a fascinating question. So first on sustainability, right? So the, the, the aim of sustainability is, is to improve lives, right? It, 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 is, it is also to help us preserve our ecosystem, right? Protect it and also protect it for future generations. Believe it or not, the natural resources will eventually be used in some way, shape or form, um, but um, they have to be used in a very sustainable way. Yeah. The question about carbon pricing and, and, and how it's related to sustainability, well, we, we always have to go back to the priority that climate change will impact in a non-homogeneous way and some will be impacted more than the others. And, and so we have to remember that then we do not have country problems, but we have global problems. And some of the impacts could be 
uh, wide ranging from from farming to to high food prices and that will impact the guy on the street and then not even having the chance to maybe enjoy nature as you would because some species or animals are gone are vanished extinct and things like what about future generations how will they survive um, I have two kids now, so I think about those things as well. If you think about this priory, that it's a global problem and not country problem, then you do need this kind of interactions and collaborations between countries. And two things come to mind. First, that's why we have the UN FCCC Sustainable Development Goals, such that project developers are not just looking at, let's say, sequestering carbon or removing carbon from the atmosphere, but also fulfilling certain sustainability goals like zero hunger or life on, on land or climate action. And, and the idea is that there are certain areas of the world that the, these goals are endemic to. So zero hunger is obviously not going to be a big issue, I don't know, in New Zealand or in, in the US or in Canada, but it certainly might be in South Sudan, for example, or some, some really, really poor country that need to take care of hunger for children, for example. So that's one, one key point, that climate finance helps us channel funds into such sustainability goal-oriented projects. The second bit is how governments or intergovernmental frameworks function to bring about market mechanisms that can address climate change. So we have all these different COPs, the most recent one being Glasgow, ended a couple of days ago, where we, where it was agreed that the world wants to face down coal, which in a sense is disappointing because most of us would have preferred that coal is phased out completely by 2030. And then we've also seen China and the United States come together to try in, in COP26 to try and, and find ways of reducing their emissions. But this kind of approach is critical if we are going to achieve any consensus and any success with reducing emissions. And mind you, it's, there's one other topic that we, we rarely hear, hear about because the developing countries or G77, they do not drive news. That's climate justice. And climate justice is um, the point that lends credence to the, the fact that Developing countries need climate funds, especially from the, in the context that they have contributed the least to where we are now. And if G7 high-income countries do not make available funds or commit to honoring the pledges that they make, we still haven't reached 100 billion funds, uh, so 100 billion dollar adaptation funds for developing countries, even in 2021. And in COP26, it was said it would be reached potentially in 2023. If we can't achieve these targets, then the impact of income inequality will even be exacerbated because of climate change. Let me link this to something else you asked. The rich, rich countries will be able to always buy maybe electric cars and fund green technologies but on the back of key minerals like cobalt or, or silicon are uh, mined oftentimes in unsustainable ways, which then will fuel a green revolution elsewhere, but lead to perhaps conflict, poverty, even more poverty. 
and corruption in other places. And those are definitely not sustainability goals. So long story short, that's something that's lacking. Climate justice, more collaboration, and a keen understanding that climate change is a global problem and not a country or regional problem. Wow. There's just so much that is just <laughs> going on in my head <laughs> from what you said. David actually wants to do a whole a whole episode on climate justice because we can't talk about climate finance without talking about climate justice. And and we, we can't talk about climate change without talking about climate justice. They are all just linked together. And so I completely agree with you on the points that that you are making. You know, it's it's a global problem and, and we have all these regional problems as well. And and then we, we have to sort of tie them together as we deal with it, you know. One country can say, eh, forget about it. You know, I'm just going to do what, what what I'm going to do because whatever happens in, in Ghana will affect the U.S. What happens in the U.S. will affect China and, and, and here and there. And so there's just so much that we can feed back from this. But what, what do you think we are missing towards the goal of sustainability? I mean, I think that when people hear about these things, they want mm-hmm. to know, what can we do? We want to move towards sustainability, but what do you think is missing? You know, is, is it only just going green or, you know, is there something else, something more that we could be doing? I think, um, again, that's a very that's a very interesting and fascinating question. I think there are a number of things that we can think about. I've already mentioned from the policy and market perspective, climate just, justice is a big issue. I also think that research is still sorely needed. Because I come from climate finance, there, there are still a lot of issues that need to be addressed in order to make, for example, voluntary carbon markets a competitive market, yeah, and at least more efficient. Yeah? In the context that how, how are we measuring quality? The questions about additionality have plagued the industry for a long time. And until investors are assured of quality, are sure that um, what they are buying will actually end up reducing the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere, trust will always push down price, yeah. Lack of trust will always push down price. That's 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 one one key thing that we need to solve in the industry. I also think education is key. is really crucial. Education in the context of what can I as an as an individual? Uh, we always say brighten the corner where you are. What can I as an individual change about my lifestyle and my my spending habits and my and the way I I, I go about my day. Um, so that I'm more sustainable. So maybe I'll buy, I'll, I'll use much fewer polythene bags, or I'll stop using polythene bags altogether. Yeah. Maybe I'll invest a bit more in 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 sustainable pro- uh, products uh, in the home, and I'll use electricity more more sustainably. Or maybe I won't buy certain products because those companies do not have sustainability goals, or they are, they they maybe they mine un, unsustainably, or maybe they produce oil unsustainably, but for a, a myriad of reasons. So we have to be more particular, especially when we when we get to know about the dangers of climate changes, when we can we can act on this this way. So what you don't know doesn't hurt you. But if you know knowledge, the increment of knowledge will make you take steps that uh, can help you mitigate or contribute um, to to the reduction here. So those are two fundamental areas, research, education, and something that I touched on briefly, but, but it really bothers me, is how climate change will 
fuel income inequality or, or, or simply societal inequality in society. And those who live in glass houses should not think that no stone can hit them, right? Um, in the context that you might make all the investments, you might do so, so well and apply all the adaptation measures that you, you know, but extreme weather, extreme weather or extreme scenarios could happen. You could have a migrant crisis because there is extreme famine and hunger in another country and all of a sudden, all your savings mean nothing. So a, a little bit more empathy and care for our fellow human and for other people and you can you can translate that to countries and you can translate that to regions and that is also a very important step in the mitigation process wow that is certainly a very good answer and that's what glc is about education we want to uh, we want to do our part i actually remember what you are saying is is really one of the piece of advice I received recently when I spoke with a scientist. He's a scientist slash, uh, how do I put it? He's a mediator between the science community and the policymakers. His name is Dr. Jason Blackstock. He advises countries on, on how they could reduce their emissions here and there. And this was, this was his biggest point, education, really. The need to educate everyone to see what, what everyone can do. I don't know if topping the use of plastic bags will sell with the, the woman at the kiosk in Ghana. <laughs> <laughs> she's gonna she's gonna need more education there before she she, she reconsiders you know we used to we used to we used to sell food in leaves interestingly i mean that's also perhaps not so sustainable is it but we definitely have alternatives and now we have biodegradable stuff um that we could use alternatives that we could use certainly <laughs> Certainly. There are alternatives that we can look into. And if we are supporting research, just as you said, we are going to find very good alternatives that will benefit all of us. I I, I wish we could have, you know, touched more on the on the on the climate justice, but we will we will we will contact you later, sometime in your second, third year, for another discussion on that. So as as we sort of trying to round up, I guess the question that we are thinking of is, you know, uh, what kind of advice would you have for someone who might be interested in climate finance or climate justice? And, you know, how should they prepare? What are the courses they should take in, in primary school, in high school? <laughs> should, <laughs> should, <laughs> should they start in kindergarten? You know, maybe they shouldn't learn A, B, C, D. They should be learning one, two, three. Uh, <laughs> Um, what's your advice? I think we should certainly let children stay kids, stay children, remain children and play. <laughs> no, I, I, I go into climate finance because at the core of it, it's about saving the planet, right? And providing, you know, at least cost path to zero. And, and so my, my point would be get into it for the right reason and be genuinely interested intellectually curious of course you need a good dose of skepticism to really decipher and discern what you're doing i i i certainly think that it is a broad field that has room for everyone from every di from different backgrounds whether you're quantitative or you are from the social sciences or you're an engineer there's there's really room for everyone and so a good dose of of interest um, will definitely help in that in that regard, and so 
just it's just the same as in every discipline love what you do if you're a quantity if you're quantitative that's great if if you're you're uh, from from the social sciences that's also great because we there are roles and and careers for for all um and it accommodates all of them so so i think that's that's what i'll say to anyone who is interested everyone we need we need more hands right we need more hands yes. um uh, in this Okay, so this is this is the worst part of the of the of the, of the chat every time. Any final words? But because um, <laughs> uh, we we don't want to end, but we will definitely have a continuation of this conversation. I think we um, all have it in ourselves to to more or less impact the course of of our climate change mitigation actions. Some may do it through research, others may do it through policy, but there's also the guy on the street who education certainly helps. Um, and now there isn't shortage of information. We are bombarded with information every day, every time, even when we are asleep. And so information helps us make decisions and informed choices. And so I encourage everyone, especially the climate skeptics, to, to really educate themselves, those who are not sure, to educate themselves and find ways of changing their day so that they are more sustainable. Um, companies already know that sustainability now affects the bottom line. It is only a matter of time before climate reporting becomes a compliance issue. So while that while that's, that goes on in corporate corporate yeah in corporate world, we should also think about it in our private lives, how we can move the needle in our own small way. And that those will be my final words to our hearers today. Perfect. I mean, you are absolutely right on that, and I think that the COVID has taught us <laughs> some of these lessons. I sort of foresee a, a future where you know everyone is given a quota. <laughs> yeah yeah and and we don't want that we don't want that we definitely don't want that so it's it's our one earth yeah even though we are doing research on mars we still want to preserve earth <laughs> um, yeah so any 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 greetings and shout outs to anyone out there yeah certainly so obviously thank you for having me on so it's great to see you as well, um, Daniel. Yeah. But uh, a big, a big shout out to to my wife Sharon and to our two boys Joshua and Judah. Um, big shout out, <laughs> big shout out to to uh, my professors, Professor Gökler, Professor Müller, Professor Novak, and and Professor Bear, um, and to the whole climate and sustainability working group. It's it's great what we are doing. I certainly hope that we you know are able to show more fruits for our work and and help the world in in a good path wow well folks that's uh you know that's that's a great end we are definitely sad that we have to end Origin was actually quite surprised that <laughs> that <laughs> the time had had run out so quickly this is the time for reflection and um you've you've heard him over there uh just as we always encourage everyone at GLC, we understand that interdisciplinary conversations are important and we are bringing all these matters on the table for different sectors to, to talk about how we can contribute 
to saving our planet and to staying green. And so we are very, very grateful to uh, Papa Kwekuba Ojin for his expertise. Ojin, we we can't we can't begin to thank you and we we are very excited about your journey and what you are doing and we would definitely continue to call on you to give us updates on what's on on what's happening hopefully even have your even have your your phd uh defense broadcast <laughs> uh, yeah <laughs> yeah so, so certainly thank you very much <laughs> i i have enjoyed it as well <laughs> yeah. my doors are always open Thank you so much. Thank you so much. And thank you guys for listening in. This has been the Green Living Chats podcast on climate finance and sustainability. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Green Living Chats podcast. This has been the Research Stories segment. We believe that critical thinking is for everyone and no one's story is an island. We hope that you find where your story meets others here. We look forward to hearing your thoughts and comments as we get interactive on our social media platforms at Echoamet Solutions on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and LinkedIn. If you would like to be part of these conversations, contact us via email at glcpodcasts@echoametsolutions.com or see our contact details in the show notes. See you on the next episode and remember, live green.